Hello, everyone. I'm James Marrick, and I'm here with John Lindfield for the latest edition of the St. John's Chambers Personal Injury and Clinical Negligence Team podcast. Uh, John and I are here today to discuss the recent fixed cost reforms. Fear not, though, we're going to keep it as as light as we can, so stay tuned in, um, not only because of the important recent changes, but because there's more on the horizon, unfortunately, which is likely to extend the reach of fixed costs further into both PI work and medical negligence work, um, including us from April 2024. John and I are here today to hopefully break it down as much as we can uh, and to hopefully explore some of the nuances which aren't as obvious from a, a face value look at the rules. So with that introduction, good afternoon, John, you well? I'm very well, James. Thank you very much for asking. Yeah, it's interesting to be d- delving into all these new rules. A brand new world and a brave new horizon <laughs> for uh, personal injury work. Absolutely. Look, let's start with an overview. I know most people are having to get to grips with it, although personal injury claims which are captured are largely those for accidents on or after the 1st of October 2023. But perhaps, John, can you hit us with an overview? Absolutely. So what we've got is we've got major overhaul and change to many parts of the CPR concerning case management, allocation, um, and ultimately what that all leads to is an amendment to the fixed cost rules. The biggest change is the introduction of the intermediate track, so that's going to be for claims worth between twenty-five and one hundred thousand pounds, and brand new ways of managing these claims and seeing them all the way through to trial or settlement. In which case, you are going to be attracting brand new fixed costs with wide-sweeping changes to the CPR. Knowing about those widespread changes to the CPR, James, you'd think it would be quite easy to find the rules that you need. Not always the case. It's not. So the most significant changes for someone just coming fresh to all of this are Part Twenty-six. That's the the overarching case management part of the CPR. That's now amended to incorporate the four tracks. CPR part 28 is now amended to incorporate both the fast track and intermediate case management rules. Part 45 is completely reworked to introduce the, the fixed cost provisions and levels for the fast track and the intermediate track. And then part 36 being amended as well. The difficulty you've got now is if you've got a claimant in an existing claim, an accident which predates October 2023 and it's ongoing, and you go online to find part 45, John, it's not straightforward at all. So the the justice.gov link, if you put it into Google, comes up with the new rules which don't apply. And if you go online to Westlaw, it can be a combination, depending upon which part you're looking at, as to whether they've introduced the rewritten new part or whether they have the old part there. So you've got to be on your guard. Yes, absolutely. It's not immediately obvious, but for all current fast track fixed costs work, it's the only place I found it retained is either in my old copy of the white book or uh, it's down as part 45X on Westlaw. So those are the most reliable sources for current cases proceeding under the old cost rules. What I've done is I've downloaded the old versions in PDF. So I've got those, put them into a folder. If anyone wants a copy, just ask me. But, I, you know, do it, do it now, get it sorted, because otherwise you, you could find yourself looking at the wrong set of fixed costs, for example, under part 45. But I suppose that's a neat point then, to look at what work is captured by the new fixed cost changes. Key date, John, was the 1st of October 2023. Civil Procedure Amendment Number 2 rules for 2023 came into force. It captures 
in personal injury terms, John, which work? So for personal injury work, we're talking about any claims other than a disease claim where the cause of action accrues on or after the 1st of October 2023. So that's accidents that happen after the 1st of October 2023. Or if we're talking about a disease claim, we're talking about disease claims in respect of which no letter of claim has been sent before the 1st of October 2023. So if it's quite recent and you've had got a letter of claim before the 1st of October 2023, new fixed rules do not apply. And I suspect there was a flurry of letters of claim going out by that date because there was I know there was a flurry of non-PI work being issued out of the Civil National Business Centre at the end of September because uh, as much as we're just focused on personal injury and clinical negligence cases, the new fast track and intermediate fixed cost rules capture as a default all civil work up to a value of £100,000. And for our purposes, probably the thing that's going to be captured most often are bent metal claims or credit hire. Yes, ex- exactly. So, so at the moment, the, the gap in the rules, as it were, was this. You might have a PI claim which comes through the portal onto the fixed cost fast track. If it was just a bent metal or credit hire claim worth less than £25,000, it would be assessed costs. That sort of claim is now caught by the fast track. Likewise, our, our colleague Matthew White was keen to understand what was happening with his Japanese knotweed lower value cases. And again, th- th- there's no gap in the rules there. They're captured by the new fixed cost provisions, even if they're of fast track value. Um, One surprising permutation of the new rules is as regards clinical negligence claims. So on its face, the new intermediate track captures clinical negligence cases worth between 25 to 100,000 pounds, where there's admissions on breach of duty and causation. It's not clear at all at this stage as to the scope of those admissions and when they ought to be made in order for that work to be captured. Uh, And equally, we've got this slightly bizarre situation at the moment where there's the possibility of 25k to 100k clinical negligence claims being captured by a fixed cost regime, but, but those of a lower value not being captured, although of course there's the the low-value negligence scheme on the horizon. We've gone beyond an overview, I think, there, John, but let's pull back slightly. Let's take an example, fast-track cases. We'll come on to intermediate-track cases in due course. If I'm a fee earner who does fast-track personal injury work, whether it's claimant or defendant, I've got a client or a case that I've got to defend um, involving a, a claimant who's been injured on the 2nd of October who's very keen to bring his claim, his medical evidence worked up, what's going to be different now? Because I think this is probably the right way to do it because there's no substitution for looking at the rules. But I think the best way we can probably do it is by giving some worked examples, John. Yeah, I completely agree and wholeheartedly endorse that, that as much as you can talk about it, there's no substitution for reading it. But let's start with what's the same. If you had an accident on the 2nd of October 2023, then pre-action in the fast track, i.e. claims worth up to a value of £25,000, nothing changes, you'll still have the portals to go through in the usual way. What will be changing is once that claim is litigated and once you're issued. Now, as you would normally do, You'll plead your case or you'll do your defence. You'll file them with court and then you'll be getting your directions questionnaires. And this is where the first big major change happens because not only are the courts going to be allocating claims to a particular track, we now have this new concept of assignment, which means that even within the relevant tracks, that is the fast track and the intermediate track for these purposes, claims will be divided up into complexity bandings. Now, 
The new rule, 2614, talks about assignment. And it says, uh, sub one, when a claim is allocated to the fast track or the intermediate track, the court must also assign the claim to a complexity band unless it is a hearing loss claim. And what those bands do is they try and separate out the less complex from the more complex cases directly feeding through at the end of the day into increased or decreased levels of fixed costs. So, James, practically then, what is going to happen for the court to know how to assign these cases? Well, it's buried in 2614. So part 26 is going to be the starting point. A party must state on in their directions questionnaire any agreed complexity band or where the parties disagree the complexity band considered appropriate by that party together with any relevant information in support. Now, this is going to apply both to the intermediate track cases and the fast track cases. But should we look at those complexity bands? So the complexity bands, as John has said, will ultimately affect the level of fixed cost you now get. So once you know the complexity band, you can work out what level of costs you're ultimately going to attract. But we've got this first inbuilt satellite skirmish as to not only allocation, but there's going to be allocation and assignment. And it's the rules 2615, John, which sets out the different complexity bands. Yes, James, it does. And actually, in the fast track, this is much more easy to follow, as we will see in the intermediate track, it is not. Um, but so we are split into complexity band, complexity band one, two, three, and four. For today's purposes, complexity band one is unlikely to apply because that's non-PI claims. So we're more likely than not looking at the multitude of claims falling into complexity bands two and three. Complexity band two being RTAs and personal injury claims with respect to package travel, and complexity band three are RTAs where the protocol doesn't apply, so those carve-outs where you don't need to start a claim in the portal, and a lot, and all your EL and PL claims as well. So largely, James, I think those are the two bands that are going to be the largest battlegrounds. But then you do have complexity band four, which covers disease claims other than hearing loss. As I say, hearing loss is hived off entirely. And the, cat, the very helpful catch-all, any claim which would normally be allocated to the fast track but is nonetheless complex... We don't have any guidance about what that means, do we? No, we have zero guidance on that. And we're very fortunate for once as personal injury practitioners that because most general non-PI cases have been caught already by the new regime, we're likely to have some of the early case law by the time we have to grapple with it. But that's going to be, you know, if you act for claimants, is there a way in which you can argue that you get to complexity ban four because the claim is sufficiently complex. I suspect it's going to be a narrow jurisdiction in how it's interpreted. Most EL and PL cases are going to be caught by complexity band three, and there's going to be some arguments as to whether or not some RTA-type claims fall into to band two or three. But that that's going to be the majority of it. And of course, as John said, disease claims in band four. So look, John, let, let's let's work with this example. Our, our injured claimant on the 2nd of October 2023 has an EL claim. So it's, it's complexity band three. So that's, a, that's been agreed in the DQs in our case. There's been no need to have the argument. It's gone in the DQs. It's been filed. It's been assigned on the papers to band three and allocated to the fast track. Pause in there. In cases where it's not agreed, we're expecting decisions on the papers from district judges or we're expecting 
short form assignment hearings as well. Yes, and just to flesh that out ever so slightly, um, 26.7, sub 4, the court can order further information to be provided from the parties before making a decision on assignment. And 26.7, sub 5, it may have a hearing to decide it if it's necessary. And always bear in mind, actually, with these assignments, and this is something that's going to run through all the cases, is that the court is able to both reallocate and reassign on application under 2618 at any time. So do keep an eye on how the case is progressing. If it gets more complex or more complex arguments are thrown in, then be aware of applications to reassign. Sorry, James, I've taken us off course there very slightly, but back to our injured claimant. Our injured claimant then. So conventional directions otherwise, we get to trial... What costs is a successful claimant recovering? And and how do we find those costs? Where are they? James, they are all in the practice direction to part 45. The, the biggest change in the, the layout of the rules is that all of the costs tables, as they are now termed, are taken into, part, into the practice direction of part 45 and all the rules themselves stay in the rules. Table 12 of practice direction 45 is the new fixed costs for fast track cases in the same way they're divided out into the complexity bandings and our el claimant if he gets to trial disposed of at trial the fixed costs are five thousand one hundred pounds plus an amount equivalent to 30 percent of the damages agreed or awarded interestingly we are used to a slight variance between pl and el claims on the fixed costs as they stand both in in these tables attract the same and of course good for us trial advocacy fees have gone up too yeah so the old the old 500s now 580 the old 710s 820 the old 1070 is 1200 and the old 1750 is 2000 um and you know that 5100 plus 30 percent of damages agreed or awarded is probably an inflationary uplift. I think on the an EL claim at the moment on an existing claim, is it four two three oh plus that sounds a percentage about right. plus thirty yes. percent or so uh, as the uplift. So so it's a marginally better. Certainly, I, I don't think claimants or defendants are particularly disadvantaged by the new changes. I, I think they probably fairly reflect an inflationary increase in that respect. There's different bandings if the claim settles after issue but before allocation, after allocation but before listed for trial, or on or after the date that the, the court lists the claim for trial but before trial, and then finally, of course, if the claim's disposed of at trial. So they, they remain the same. Um, I, don't, I don't think there's going to be any consistency of practice introduced as to whether there's any... Uh, some courts um, allocate and list all at once. So sometimes that middle banding is completely irrelevant. But but there we have it. So I, I think that's... We, we, we've done that as a, deliberately as a worked example of how the fast track's going to work. Because most of our fast track work, beyond that assignment question, is going to stay the same, isn't it? It is, James. Perhaps worth mentioning very quickly the disbursements on under the new fast track fixed costs very, very similar to the ones that you'll be used to. You can recover council's fees where a claim would normally be assigned to complexity band four for legal advice or statement of case drafting. And that signposts table 13, which provides for £1,000 for providing post-issue advice or £500 for drafting a statement of case, but the use of a legal representative must be justified. At the moment, you can recover advice from counsel if the claim is worth over £10,000. That is retained, but that's capped at £150 plus VAT. And the 
disbursements rules effectively say you get any disbursement um, which is defined and those which have been reasonably incurred. Excellent, John. And that's fast tracks. Intermediate track is the main change introduced by this regime. It's been it's been talked about for years. I think since the first sort of Rupert Jackson reports captured claims on the intermediate track. Twenty six point nine scope of the track. What's the basic scope of the track, John? So 26.9 is pretty comprehensive in telling us that it's claims with a monetary value not more than £100,000. The trial is not going to last longer than three days. Oral expert evidence at trial is likely to be limited to two experts per party. The claim can be justly and proportionately managed under the procedure set out in Section 4 of Part 28. And there are no additional factors which would make the claim inappropriate for the intermediate track. And actually, these this is potentially quite interesting for EL claims, claims brought by one claimant against either one or two defendants or two claimants against one defendant. So three parties overall. It doesn't seem to be much of a sea change there, does it, James? Because very rarely, even today, would you have a claim up to £100,000 listed for longer than three days. Yes, John. I suspect the intention of the rules as well is, is for the judges, again, to quite keenly and proactively case manage cases. I mean, it's very difficult at an early stage to be able, one, to say how long the trial's going to be. Uh, and then you've got this question as well as to the extent of oral expert evidence that trial is likely to be limited to two experts per party. And what comes to mind is, is a pain case where you might have the classic triumvirate of an orthopaedic surgeon, a psychiatrist and an expert in, in pain management or, or similar. And both sides get permission for three experts, although it's probably vanishingly rare for all three sets of experts to give oral evidence at trial. Now, if it's a case where permission in all those three disciplines is required, will that in itself take this off the intermediate track, even if it's worth less than £100,000? Or will a judge say, well, actually, as much as the written evidence is in more than two disciplines, the oral expert evidence at trial isn't likely to exceed more than two parties? You picked up on a, um, a good further point, John, which, of course, is that whereas there's been an incentive for a while now since the latest Quox reforms were introduced to narrow down the number of defendants, there could be reason for claimants' interest not to be slow to pursue more than one or two defendants. Yeah, immediately what comes to mind is accidents on building sites or in public places. You know, when you've got occupier, you've got main contractor, subcontractor, whoever gave you the bit of equipment you're working with, whoever cleans the floors, it's very easy for claimants to, to find three part three defendants. Balancing interests, I suspect. Thus, in summary, claims with between 25,000 and 100,000, trial three days or less, oral expert evidence from no more than two experts per party, and a claim brought against no more than two defendants or by two claimants against one defendant is caught. There's some further carve-outs, John. So there's some types of cases which, even if they would meet those criteria, are carved out, aren't they? Yes, James. It's 26.9 sub 10. And this is where a claim must be allocated to the multi-track. I'll just go through them to say a meso claim or asbestos lung disease claims, Clinical negligence, unless it's one of the ones that James has already talked about where you've got admission of breach of duty and causation. A claim for damages in relation to harm, abuse or neglect of or by children or vulnerable adults. Claim against the police includes a claim for intentional reckless torts. 
relief or remedy in relation to a breach of the Human Rights Act, albeit not EL claims, RTAs from negligent police driving or any other claim for an accidental fall on police premises. One of the things that I'd like to draw out of that very quickly is that that multi-track carve-out, a claim for damages in relation to harm, abuse or neglect of or by children or vulnerable adults. I've seen it a few times. For example, nurse assaulted by um, protected party who's a patient within a hospital. The argument often goes, well, this is harm by a vulnerable adult. If I were a defendant, I'd be resisting that. Scott and Ministry of Justice... 2019 EWHC B13 brackets costs. The point is uh, that it is that harm is not read to mean simply personal injury. So defendants, you can and should be resisting any argument that that pushes those claims onto the multi-track. Thanks for that, John. And I, I think there's a, a further important point about these carve-outs as well, and and that's the uncertainty to do with clinical negligence claims. If you're a clinical negligence practitioner who's been eagerly sat there. Um, waiting for us to sort of come on to clinical negligence claims. Um, this is probably the first important point to make. So the, the claim for clinical negligence isn't normally caught by the intermediate track um, unless both breach of duty and causation have been admitted. My understanding is, is that one of the amendments which will be introduced in April 2024 will be to tighten up this wording to state that both breach of duty and causation have been admitted in a pre-action protocol letter of response. Um, Some might say that that tightening up doesn't quite go far enough to deal with cases where there's partial admissions of breach of duty and causation. I would read the carve-out literally, though. Both breach of duty and causation have been admitted. I think this can only be workable if it's effectively a full admission. We'll have to see. We will. As with all those things, these, there are no guidance as to any of these, so we're left on our own to, to work out what's going on and or leave the Court of Appeal to do it for us. OK, John, let's go to one of our fantastic hypothetical examples to see how the intermediate track works. So we, we've got a claim now. It's our, it's our injured claimant from before, but he's more badly injured than we first appreciated and his claim's worth between twenty five to £100,000. The intermediate track, there's both the concept of allocation and assignment. You'll find that at part 26. Assignment on the intermediate track is going to be satellite litigation galore, isn't it, John? Oh, it really is, James. Whereas actually in the last lot of complexity bandings, we saw some quite clear examples of sorts of claims that fall in. Under the intermediate track, all you get is you start at complexity band one, which says any claim where only one issue is in dispute trial's not going to be longer than a day for example pi claims where liability or quantum is in dispute complexity band two any less complex claim where more than one issue is in dispute including pi claims where liability and quantum are in dispute at least up until that point we have some idea of what claims are going to be going in there however we then get complexity band three Any more complex claim where more than one issue is in dispute, but which is unsuitable for assignment to complexity band two, and that brings in hearing loss and other disease claims. And then complexity band four, any claim which would normally be allocated to the intermediate track, but is unsuitable to complexity bands one to three, including personal injury claims where there are serious issues of fact or law. So all they tell us is either you're either more or less complex than the case stood next to you. 
so let's go back to our worked example then. So we've got an EL accident. Let's say it's a construction site accident. Liability is disputed because the main contractor and the subcontractor are pointing a finger at each other. There's nasty orthopedic injury, so we're nowhere near agreement on quantum. On its face, that looks like it's complexity band two. More than one issue in dispute includes PI claims where liability and quantum are in dispute. Is there an argument it's complexity band three? Any more complex claim where more than one issue is in dispute? Uh, I suppose there could be features of a construction claim. I suppose, for example, if you had contribution claims between the defendants or if you had indemnity issues or if you had issues between the defendants themselves, that might push you up into complexity band three. Uh, And I suppose then what might take us into complexity band four? Well, the argument for defendant interest is going to be, no, this is definitely complexity band two, maybe band three. But I'm expecting this reference to Ban for including any personal injury claim where there are serious issues of fact or law to be a real battleground for claimant interest to argue that the most serious issue of fact that can be put is one of dishonesty and fundamental dishonesty. And it would not surprise me at all if one of the features of the initial satellite litigation is whether an FD allegation puts something into complexity band four. Yes, I completely agree, James. And actually, what do you think to this in the practice that is sometimes adopted of defendants to keep their powder dry on FD and put a put to proof defence, but then later raise FD either in a counter schedule or at trial? Could that then trigger a claimant application for reassignment at that stage, saying, well, now there's a serious issue of, of fact that, that, that wasn't there before, and now we want the top of the intermediate track? Well, exactly, John. So to, to unwind, to put that point in context, we've still got the initial, you'll still file your DQs. There'll be the initial assignment skirmish. It will be assigned on the basis of the the pleadings and evidence as it exists at that early stage of the case, there's the escape mechanism to revisit it on an application. But it, it's going to be one of the features. And I, I just, it seems to me it's going to be rife for satellite litigation Absolutely on these sorts is. of points. Absolutely, it is. Um, I suppose one of the things to take away is that it is at least in some way tied to the number of issues that you take. So as a defendant, you might be incentivized not to take certain issues to bring yourself down through the complexity bandings um, and really make a a somewhat of a more informed choice than a kitchen sink. Yes, it's it's a a point I raised at our recent clinical negligence seminar, in fact, that one might expect now for there to be more early admissions on lower value clinical negligence claims to bring them within the intermediate track for for those cases, which in due course will be caught by it. Um, But again, it's define issues (laughs) contributory negligence is that just a feature of a quantum dispute um it's very it's very difficult all up in the air so james let's take our injured el claimant in his construction accident the costs let's say this has gone all the way to trial but we can talk our way through it he now has to look to table 14 of practice direction 45 to find the costs applicable to the claim now What we've got are the stage of litigation as we're used to from the fast track, but just more broken down into its constituent parts. So, for example, we start at from pre-issue up to and including the date of service of the defence. And we go all the way through until you conclude at trial. 
Now, let's say that for argument's sake, we got assigned to complexity band two and it stayed there until the end. On a pure fixed costs analysis, we look at stage eight, which is the end of stage six up until the date of the trial. And what you would recover is £17,000 plus an amount equivalent to 20% of the damages and you get £870 less if the party did not prepare the trial bundle. That's it for fixed costs. Actually, one thing I should say, and because I've, I've seen it said elsewhere, but um, to be very clear, these stages, you don't get all of them. <laughs> you only get the, the one that is applicable at the date at which you need to look at them. Yeah, they're the cumulative totals, aren't they? So under band two... From pre-issue up to and including the date of service of the defence under band two, it's £5,000 if you settle at that stage, plus an amount equivalent to 6% of the damages. Then you get to stage three. From the date of service of the defence up to directions, it's 7700 as that ongoing cumulative total, plus 12% of the damages. So there's probably two... two Features to bear in mind at this stage. So the general fixed cost sums are something closer to the profit cost sums to be recovered because the intermediate track, unlike the fast track fixed cost regime, bills in provision for specialist legal representative input at various stages. Obviously, as counsel, we're fairly relieved about that, John. So, you know, for example, there's a stage two specialist legal representative providing post issue advice in writing or in conference or drafting a statement of case in our band two claim. It's a fee of two thousand pounds. Stage seven is specialist legal representative advising in writing or in conference following the filing of a defence. And again, there's further provision for a sum of up to 1700 there. And there's, there's various fees built in for attendance at trial. If there's ADR, including set fees for mediation and, and joint settlement. And this, of course, is in addition to the recovery of your usual disbursements on top for medical reports and the like. Yes, and actually the disbursements rules under the intermediate track are very straightforward. All they say is you get any disbursement which is reasonably incurred other than those which have already been provided for in the rules. So, for example, the council's fees you've already referred to, James, that would be something that has already been provided for. But anything else goes as long as it has been reasonably incurred. Another interesting point, actually, about these stages and something that the parties, I think, will need to be alive to is that it's 45 50 sub 2a the stages of litigation will kick in when the court originally planned them to not when you extend them to so if for example you extend the date for inspection of documents normally stage four of the intermediate track is from the end of stage three up until including the date set by the court for the inspection of documents if you extend that date as a defendant for example you have unwittingly fallen into stage five. Oh, interesting, John. I genuinely wasn't aware of that. So I've I've learned something today. Going back to our worked example then, you know, in our fixed costs, good or bad, our construction site claim is resolved at trial for, for £50,000. The basic profit costs are going to be 17000 plus 20% of the damages, so another 10000 So £27,000 plus fat plus then your disbursements, plus then any of the separate legal representative fees you've incurred. So one can see that we don't necessarily end up in 
dissimilar to territory to the sort of budgeted level of costs you might have at the moment without the swings and roundabouts of the arbitrary budgeting process. Yes, I suppose for both parties and perhaps particularly defendants, your exposure is much more clear under, under the intermediate track from the outset where you don't have to go through the cost budgeting process. Um, exactly, John. But yeah, you've got to look at the tables at part 45 and have an eye on those because they'll give you your fixed cost stagings. As John said, the stages kick in when the court originally planned. Defendants' costs are drawn by regard to what the claimant would have been entitled to at various stages, and that'll be important when we look at part 36 relatively briefly i think part 36 probably requires its own separate talk and um, there's also a london weighting of 12 and a half percent that still applies yeah i think that point about defendants cost is worth highlighting because it wasn't entirely clear in the previous rules but it is front and center black and white now defendants if you're a defendant and you get a costs award you will get what the claimant would have been entitled to have the cost committee have they thought about interim applications john yes they have and actually, you will find that they are almost identical to what we have at the moment. However, interim applications, they're dealt with Table 1 to practice Direction 45. A claim which would normally be or is assigned to complexity bands 1, 2 or 3 of Table 12. That's the fast track, £250. A claim which is complexity band 4 of the fast track or any of the intermediate track or hearing loss claims, £333 unless it's an application for summary judgment, an interim payment or an interim injunction, £750. So James, the, the, the low level of costs recoverable might, I suppose, mean that people are likely to want to chance their arms on perhaps reassignment, reallocation. Well, yes, claimants might chance their hand at reassignment, reallocation. Defendants might well try their luck on strikeout applications or summary judgment applications in more borderline cases as well, given the fixed costs provisions will, will extend there. So there's, there hasn't been left the uncertainty there as regards a potential escape clause, you know, to, for, for higher costs to be run up on an interim application. So they've closed off one of the areas of potential satellite litigation. OK, that's intermediate track and costs, John. We're getting there. I hope you're still with us, everyone. Um, let's just look then um, at the intermediate track and case management in further detail. So we've looked at the intermediate track allocation assignment. Let's look further then at case management more generally. So, John, case management on the intermediate track... There won't be a CCMC, obviously, because budget doesn't apply. But what about a CMC, PTRs, any other case management permutations we need to be aware of? Of course, yeah. So the new rules say that the court will list a CMC, um, albeit there are some catch-all provisions there that say that the court can vacate that CMC upon consent between the parties. It may list a PTR in the same way as the court may list a PTR now. Are there any limits, James, to any of the documents in the intermediate track? There are, John, actually. So, so the rules, again, buried in Part 28, discusses conventional orders on disclosure, service of witness statements, expert evidence, whether to fix a, a pre-trial review, all matters for the CMC. But there's some specific provisions dealing with the intermediate track. And the, the precise rule is 28, spot 14. Oral expert evidence is generally limited to one witness per party, save where the oral evidence of a second expert is reasonably required. 
trial time estimate must not exceed three days. And then going back to your, your very original question, John, the total length of all the permitted witness statements and witness summaries of a party shall not exceed 30 pages. I read that as each party in the case being entitled only to file witness statements with a, a combined length of up to 30 pages when they're conventionally spaced and conventionally font-sized. I think there are a number of ways to read it. I, I, for what it's worth, agree with you. It's not clear, actually, is it, whether that takes into account, for example, exhibits, attachments to witness statements, or whether it's just the statements themselves, because that's drawn in comparison to the expert reports, isn't it? Because expert reports, no longer than 20 pages, excluding any additional material that gets appended to Yes, it, it, exactly, John. So it's, it's <laughs> we've got silence on exhibits, now, I've got to be honest, my immediate advice to anyone instructing me on these cases will be don't exhibit the documents. They'll form part of the trial bundle generally. It's the bane of a trial judge's life to have four copies of the same document in the bundle in any event. So I'd be minded, if in doubt, to simply not exhibit and just refer to documents which are already form part of the disclosure. There is an ambiguity there, though. You know, we... we we're bound to see some reported cases where uh, an angry judge has taken hold of a defaulting party and imposed some draconian sanction. And then there's probably going to be a lot more unreported cases where um, the, the bark of this rule is worse than its bite, I suspect. I suspect that might be the case as well. One other quick point on case management under the, under, under the intermediate track. It's buried away in the rules, but again, oral expert evidence limited to one per party unless it's reasonably required and proportionate to have the second. So no automatic entitlement to two experts, even though that is how the scope of the intermediate track is drawn to start with. Yes, exactly. And I, and I do wonder if there'll be an instruction to judges to say, do not give permission for oral evidence at CMC. And it's going to be a matter for PTR, if need be at that stage, to come back after joint statements and to deal with it. And on that basis, the matter is kept within the intermediate track. Yes, perhaps very quickly, another thing to think about, when we're thinking about the intermediate track and we talked about which claims fall in and out of it, we talked about two claimants bringing a claim against one defendant. So, for example, multiple occupants of the same vehicle involved in a car accident. And this goes for the, the fast track as well, actually. Um, 26.77, at, at an early stage, the court will make a decision on the recoverable costs of the second claimant. That could be, for example, saying these are two entirely separate claims. You get two lots of fixed costs. Or, if they're very similar, it is a 25% uplift for the second claimant. Um, but that's something, again, a court is going to grapple with before it starts doing it all and not at the end. And one can only imagine the satellite litigation. I mean, it's remarkable that that is still a point which isn't clarified under the existing regime where you turn up to trial and everyone has their competing authorities where there's two sets of fixed costs but one advocacy fee awarded. Um, at least it's going to be done prospectively rather than retrospectively now. I, I think... That's the basics of the intermediate track, John. I think so, James. I think the only things to say is, no matter what the rules say, 
We've always got the catch-all provisions that tell us you can get uplifts for your costs in exceptional circumstances and uplift where a party has behaved unreasonably. The uplift for a party behaving unreasonably is 50% either way. So either 50% off or 50% uplift, depending on who you want to have less or more costs. And the definition of unreasonable is really unhelpful because it says behaviour is unreasonable if there is no reasonable explanation for it. You are unreasonable if you act unreasonably. Yes. (laughs) I think that the theme is becoming satellite litigation. Yes, absolutely. It beckons. Um, Part 36, John. Take a gasp. A source in itself of much satellite litigation over the years. The very basics, I think, John, is what we stick to for today. Um, The headline is... Part 36 has now been rewritten, so there's an additional part which deals with Part 36 in the context of fixed costs. And unsurprisingly, it's all fixed. In fact, James, as opposed to some of the rules we've already been talking about, it's arguable that this Part 36 is much less complex as it used to be. All of the costs you recover under Part 36, whether that's at judgment or on acceptance, are fixed. Uh, and what do we mean by all fixed? Well, for those that have been engaged with fast track work now, Broadhurst and Tan would mean that if a claimant beat their own offer at trial, they would escape fixed costs and recover assessed costs on an indemnity basis. And um, that's now been legislated against for both fast track and intermediate track cases. Um, you get an, an uplift. Uh, I think the general rule is equivalent to 35% effectively john of your the cost you're entitled to at the point at which the offer bites so what you get james um is a 35 percent uplift on the difference between the stage at litigation you were at when the offer expired and the stage you are at, at judgment so for example this is why i mentioned that it's important that the stages kick in when the court originally meant them to Because, for example, if you're sitting on a Part 36 offer that goes over from one date to another, by waiting, you can have effectively slipped into the next stage. But yes, so obviously the longer the offers run, the better it gets. And the later the offer, the less bite it carries. And if you're right at the end, late Part 36 offers might might make very little, if any, difference at all. And the, the, the basic rule for those that aren't as familiar with, with the old fast track regime is if you make an offer at a certain point and it's accepted within the 21 days, you're entitled to the fixed costs which apply as at that stage. Yes. And also, it, 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 as well as just dealing with Part 36 offers at trial, Part 36 has also been overhauled to deal with late acceptance of Part 36 offers. And it's exactly the same as you would expect Claimant gets fixed costs for the stage proceedings were on expiry. Defendant gets the fixed costs for the stage at which the offer is accepted, less the costs to which the claimant is entitled. So, in effect, defendant gets the difference of what's been expended since then. If the claimant accepts an offer within the same stage, but late, as the rules currently stand, it sounds the defendant gets all of their costs. I think that's probably a typo, and what it means is the claimant gets all of their costs because no further work with those stages has taken place. That's the Part 36 changes in the proverbial nutshell, I, I think. I mean, they're, they're very much a corollary 
of the changes made to parts 26, 28 and 45. Again, no substitute for actually reading the rules. I touched upon this before, but I suppose in ending and bringing things together, we started with the fact that there's more on the horizon. St John's Chambers was involved last week in preparing a response to the disbursements proposed for the new low-value portal for clinical negligence claims pre-litigation. The understanding is that that scheme might be brought in as early as April 2024. That will apply pre-litigation to clinical negligence claims worth up to £25,000. Still a lot to be pinned down on that. Disbursement consultations just closed. Um, My understanding as well is that April 2024, we're likely to have our first review and amendments made and implemented to the what's the, the the new now October 2023 changes. My understanding is that there's going to be some form of detailed assessment processes for the fixed cost cases that settle earlier than a final hearing with a cap of £500 potentially. And there might be fixed costs for any costs-only proceedings of up to £300 I think has been proposed. As I've already said, there's likely to be that clarification of which clinical negligence cases are caught admissions in the pre-action protocol letter and I think really importantly there's been a further look at bolt-on costs for inquest related costs and restoration proceedings where you've got to restore a company for the register although the latter's been increasingly rare since the um, the changes made to the uh, third party rights against insurers regime but there's going to be further changes John um, and clinical ne- negligence is very much the next target for this so watch this space in that respect yes absolutely there are going to be not only changes to the rules but no doubt in very short order some cases some case law leapfrogged up to the court of appeal to deal with these things at an early stage which it seems we've all been left to do given that there's no guidance to deal with it john i think we've done it i think we've gone through the key changes to both the fast track and the intermediate track i think we have Remember that you're going to take a journey through issue, through your DQs into allocation and assignment. That will take you through case management and ultimately lead you down into the practice direction 45 cost tables for any case up to £100,000. And if you read through the rules, you should get maybe 70% of the way there, do we reckon? Maybe 80 before... You beat me to it, John. I was going to say the rules aren't entirely self-explanatory, which you'd expect them to be at this stage, particularly as they're meant to be user-friendly for litigants in person and the like. So do feel free to drop John or I a line or any of the team at St. John's if you've got any queries. As we've said, there should be a, a lag of sorts as most of our personal injury cases are only captured as from the 1st of October, new accidents from that date. So we should have a lag, but of course you might have some um, non-PI cases on your books and we're more than happy to, to help and assist with those as well. Absolutely. Send your queries across. Well, thanks very much for chatting through that with me, James. It's been a helpful exercise for us as well as I hope everyone else listening. Thank you for tuning in to the St. John's Chambers Personal Injury Podcast. Keep your fingers on the button to subscribe to the channel uh, next time i'm reliably informed that the next podcast you'll be hearing is one from our colleagues all about inquests from louise asprey and lauren carmel so i'll certainly be tuning into that absolutely john well thanks everyone and thanks john thank you very much <laughs>